Sri Guru Vaishnava Guru Parampara Ki Jai. Good evening. So, continuing our discussion of Srimad Bhagavatam. This is the third chapter of the first canto. So last night we discussed the first verse of the third chapter. And the first verse is followed by four other successive verses that elaborate a little bit more on the idea of the Purusha, Purusha, the the spiritual uh, person, and as we'll see, consciousness behind the world. It's worth noting that uh, consciousness is typically depicted, and I want to say experienced, by the rishis, sages, and so forth, as um, as personal, hmm? just like we're a unit of consciousness, and at least materially speaking, we have a personality. The idea is that spiritually speaking, we do as well. So they would see, in a general sense, the consciousness is the backing behind matter, and that which animates it and so forth. And so they would uh, see a powerful movement in nature and tend to attribute personality to it. This is not really a, a crude and backward kind of superstitious idea. If you look very closely at it, you find it's very, very thoughtful. And um, based on an understanding of the nature of one's own individual consciousness and from that then vantage point looking at the world and so they're positing persons or attributing kind of a personal feature if you will to consciousness so the Purusha means person And the discussion here is about the Purusha and their three principal uh, manifestations of the Purusha. And importantly here in this section, we're learning that all three of them are at the same time manifestations of the Bhagavan. Because Bhagavan is the full person. When consciousness fully plays itself out in terms of personhood. And then when it's partially manifests itself for certain functions. Hmm? In this instance, uh, the the Purusha or the Paramatma is manifest for the function of the world, of dealing with the unconscious and, and animating it by what? By expanding persons, if you will, or sparks of consciousness into it. Hmm? So, uh, uh, two of the three principal purushas, or manifestations of the kind of oversoul of the world, are discussed in this section. The three are, of course, as I said last night, the the uh, Mahabhshu, the, the 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 purusha from whom the universes, the multiverse, is said to manifest. That idea of 
of consciousness. And then a Purusha expands from him and goes into each universe, kind of the soul of the universe, if you will. And then from there, into every atom. So from the smallest to the largest, it's got everything covered, controlling everything, knowing everything. Again, Purusha is about about knowing, about knowledge, and about and knowing means kind of understanding. Knowing means you've got it kind of within your grip. Yeah, I know that. You say, I know, I know that. I've got it. I've understood it. I've captured it. Something like that. <clears throat> so that's the Purusha's position. And as I say, two of these Purushas, the one from whom the, the world, the, the universe, the multiverse is manifested. And the one that enters into each universe, these features are discussed in these first five verses, one of which we heard last night. So, again, a little bit of um, entrance here into the Bhagwat's cos- cosmology. And we found that it had considerable, uh, when played out, correspondence with some modern um, theories as to. Uh, the origins of the world, the Big Bang, and so forth. Very interesting. You won't find this, and and this is objective. Uh, of course, we like our tradition, you know, more than others. That's why we're in it. But but we we appreciate the others as well. But we don't find in other, any other religious tradition any um, uh, cosmology. And every religion has a cosmology. Speaks about origins of the world and so forth. That has any real cor- any correspondence with modern empiric findings as to the nature of the universe. That's interesting. Um, time spans also that are found discussed uh, in relation to the world in Hinduism are unique with regard to other religious traditions, and they have much more correspondence with the way modern contemporary uh, science looks at ages and uh, durations of of, uh, of time and so forth. Uh, so we, uh, I mean, uh, the whole idea, I did speak about it to some extent, is not played out here. The Purushas are being introduced here for a different reason, but it lends to speaking about the idea of the worlds manifesting the multiverse and, and so on and so forth. So we went there to some extent, <clears throat> and again, I'm just um, you know, thinking back on it, and and at the moment reflecting how interesting that is, and how it, for the those who have an affinity for uh, the path for for Hinduism in general, in, in any particular path for that matter within Hinduism, they have this uh, you know kind of to uh, help them along, so to speak, that my, my tradition makes sense. I mean, not that it has to. <laughs> if it makes sense for you and it works for you and it makes you happy, then I think that's good enough. But but uh, uh, it, it's it's nice to, to know that your, your tradition, although ageless and ancient, is alive and well. This isn't a dusty old book that has no relevance for the modern times. Even in terms of its cosmology. That's very interesting. Um, it's not like the Noah's Ark or something like that, or Adam and Eve kind of a 
story. There are some stories like that in the Bhagavatam about creation. They're sub-stories, but the overriding idea of the cosmology is that it has a conscious origins. It's the unconscious, if you will, a kind of, of the conscious source and this conscious source interacting with it through ourselves, through the sparks that are the rays of the sun of, of consciousness of the parishion animating the world, making it go round and cyclical time instead of linear time and, and the world's coming and going expanding and contracting, expanding and contracting each contraction each expansion when it contracts and then expands again carries some of the imprint of the previous one and again this was this is the modern theories like that and the, the, the Bhagwat theory of cosmology is similar. The whole, whole idea is that the karma is is it's kind of like Vishnu, the Purusha dreams the world and it, it ends up in a nightmare. So he you know, he turns it off, so to speak, and everything winds up back, you know, contracts back within him. And all the jivas, all the individual sparks of consciousness that are under the rule of karma, implicated in karma, that they all come back in and from a heterogeneous condition of individuality, they go into a homogeneous-like condition. It's likened to deep sleep. Deep sleep means, in this context, when you sleep, but your psychic dimension is not active. There's no dreaming. The physical dimension kind of closes down for all intents and purposes, and you're not aware of that or functioning um, in, in, in terms of that. But we may sleep and the psychic dimension of our material self may be operative and we dream. And in the mind there's all kinds of possibilities. That in mind stuff there's all kinds of possibilities that uh, we don't find in the physical world. Like you can, in the physical world you can see gold and you can see a mountain, but it's hard to find a mountain made out of gold much harder to even to, to own one. But in the, in, the, in the dream world, you can do that. You can find a mountain of gold and it can be yours and so forth. Many possibilities there. This actually, just as a, an aside here, this mental world, this psychic dimension, and the possibilities of dreams and so forth, this is what the worlds of the gods and the goddesses uh, are about. Hmm? You read things in the text about... Um, the gods and goddesses which are like presiding over different aspects of nature and so forth. It's a, it's a mental kind of realm. It's not the, like the mind between your ears kind of thing, but an, it's an as a, as a ontological substance mind. It's, a, we, 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 it's referred to as a subtle form of matter, just like there's a gross form of matter, sense objects, the body and so forth. There is this subtle mind is called sometimes the sixth sense. So it's a sense, but it's it's different too. It has to have a different different nature. It is thought that, or understood, I should say, that consciousness, which is categorically different from matter, subtle matter has some correlation with gross matter. Consciousness is categorically different. We can measure anyway. But consciousness then 
interacts, if you will, with gross matter through the medium of the mind. Mind can take a shape kind of similar to consciousness. and Therefore, in, in, in neuroscience and philosophy of mind, they, they tend to equate consciousness with mind. Hmm? We say consciousness is a finer, more refined substance and not material at all. But there is a physical realm and there is a mental realm. And there are many possibilities that lie in the mental realm, as many as you can dream about, hmm? compared to the physical realm. If I asked you to carry everything out of this room, physically it would be difficult. But if I said take it with your mind, then it might, it might be possible. Hmm? So, in some sections of these ancient texts, this mental world, heavens and so forth, are talked about. Gods and goddesses and all kinds of possibilities, and it sounds rather fantastic, but let's go to sleep at night, that's pretty fantastic as well. Is that unreal? Hmm? What is dreaming? And I mean, there's different ways to think about it and so forth. But, but uh, this is something about how we it is, it is looked at from the Bhagavad point of view. So, there's a waking state of consciousness, there's a dreaming state, and then there's a deep sleep. In other words, we go to sleep sometimes and we don't dream. And what do we find that when we wake up, we say, well, that was very... I've slept well. Hmm? I slept really well. Now, an interesting point here is that you are remembering something. I slept well. In other words, you were in a re- you're out of it now, but you were you were in a re- you were you're now awake, but you were in a very restful condition, and you're remembering what you cannot remember something that you didn't experience. So you were experiencing at that time. In other words, the mind shut down for all intents and purposes. The body shut down or you weren't functioning in relation to it, conscious of it. Hmm. But you were experiencing. It's kind of like a contentless experience. Hmm. It was. What was it like? Well, it was like restful. My mind stopped. I didn't have to worry about my body. Uh, these are really oppressive, actually. The mind and body are kind of like um, oppressing consciousness, who's identified with the body and the mind, and it's troublesome. It's ch- the senses which the body is made up of taking me in one direction, and sometimes in another direction at the same time. My my stomach may say to eat, and then, my, and then it may say stop, and my tongue may say eat more. And so I'm like, it's like pulling me in different directions problematic. And mind is driving us to do things and often things that we don't we know even aren't good for us and so forth. So when the mind shuts off and when the body shuts down and we exist in ourself, so to speak, the ideas, it's peaceful. Hmm? This is thought to be an example of within the context of our experience that we can draw upon as evidence for the the idea that consciousness endures independently of mind and body. That I had an experience. Hmm? I wasn't conscious of body and mind, but I was conscious of a restful state. So, when the world, this is a, a microcosmic 
idea, right? For ourselves, we go to sleep, deep sleep, we are restful. We we wake up, we remember. So you were obviously you you had to experience that to wake up. So you were existing in kind of independently of, or the prospect that you could exist independently of mind and body Hmm. comes to comes to the fore, comes to light. It's reasonable. And uh, so this happens to us, you know, regularly. So in a macrocosmic sense, the universe is working like this. Vishnu, the Purusha, that we're persons, and the Supreme Person goes to sleep. He wakes up, he goes to sleep. And the world comes back in, and all closes down. And all the individual souls come into a homogenous kind of a condition and the karma is all suspended and it's restful. Hmm? Karma plays itself out psychically and physically. Hmm? It is our psyche, so to speak, and our physical body. Our physical body is a composite of karma. So is our disposition mentally and materially speaking. Hmm? And so this all like closes down and, and all the jivas go to rest and then Vishnu tries again, something like that. Yeah. And everybody comes out and so forth. And then in the context of that, what we're really hearing in this section, what this section is really about, is about avatar tattva. The truth about the descent of the Godhead within the world. We're talking about the Godhead manifesting the world. But the Godhead also descends within the world without being part of it, so to speak. Just like a, like the governor can walk in the prison and go, hmm, what's going on in here? And he has the key. It may look like he's behind bars, but he can walk out at any time and he could let anybody else out also. So the avatar's descent is something like that. Hmm? This is about avatars because in the previous, uh, first, in the first chapter, actually, the question was asked about the avatars, the, the, this, this principle, to tell us something about it. Hmm? And so here Sutta Goswami is beginning to talk about it. So he begins to talk about the Purushas because the principal Purusha, the Paramatma, manifests the universes. And then he manifests in each universe and from that Purusha, the avatars are coming. Hmm? These avatars have their existence as kind of faces of the Godhead, moments of the Godhead, emotional life of the Godhead in in the... Um, realm of pure consciousness but they manifest in the world for a purpose of establishing dharma and uplifting uh, the people and teaching and so on and so forth <clears throat> so that's the context in which the purushas are being discussed because the, one of the purushas here is the source of the avatars hmm? so if you're going to talk about the avatars avatar tattva he goes here first now let me read the verses here, which um, tell us something about the um, the second Purusha. We heard about the first Purusha, from whom the universe, the multiverse, comes. Hmm? This idea. Now the Purusha that enters into each universe. That idea. Verse uh, two here. Yasyambasi shayanasya yoganidram. He says that Yasya Amba Ambasi 
Chayana, Yoga Nidram, he says that the the second Purusha, he he lies down in the water of the universe. This is uh, this means a, a, a causal ocean. It's a different kind of ocean, a causal ocean. But the idea of water is given uh, because why? Well, in one sense, because water is life, right? They found water on the moon. There must be life there, or on one of Saturn's moons, or something like that. Or, um, or I, anyway, water. Where if you have to buy land, first question is: Is there water? Hmm. If there's no life without water. Hmm. And from a scientific point of view, I guess the life, the earliest forms of life, from the water, the Bhagavata, the Puranic tradition says, Jalaja Navalakshani, Stavarlakshabhimshati. It describes different types of species in kind of an evolution. It says it begins with water. Hmm? First they come from water, and then first the water. There are so many water types, they say. And there are so many um, um, reptiles, plant life, it goes like this, culminates in human life. And it makes the point that there are many, many species, it wants to say, of different types, and there's the human species, and they're the most rare. That's the most wonderful opportunity for the Atma for the soul that's passing through these different stations and species. It's a, there's a not only reincarnation but a but a, a transmigration that takes place. So again, what animates anybody is consciousness, and and, the, and relative to the body, the consciousness has the facility, the capacity to express itself, which is all based on karma, where we are, whether we're in a reptilian body or a I don't mean one of those so-called Martians that people talk about, but or aquatic body, <laughs> or a, or a, a human body, or plant body, or so forth. The human body gives us the greatest facility, us the consciousness, to express ourselves, to come out, so to speak. So he says here, the Bhagavad says, so, so this Purusha lies in the in the in the ocean of the causal ocean. He's like the cause, hmm? and it's described as an ocean, and then he's kind of Life is going to come now, hmm? he says, into the world. It's kind of been animated. Well, it's really been animated by, by the, the glancing of the original Vishnu, and but uh, now, now in a in a in a more specific sense, hmm? life is going to manifest. So what what happens? That um, he says that this Purusha is lying on this causal ocean, and he's. He's sleeping, Shayana. He's lying down, sleeping, Yoga Nidram. But it's a special kind of sleeping. It looks like sleeping, but Yoga Nidram means uh, Nidra means to sleep, but it's yogic sleep. So he's in the yogic rest. It means he's in samadhi. He looks like he might be sleeping, but he's deeply um, aware. So there's um, uh, there's deep um, uh, he is awake within he's really a little bit asleep 
to the world outside, hmm, not involved directly, sets it into motion, but not implicated by it himself. The sparks become implicated, but the fire, fire doesn't. Hmm. Um, you know, sometimes people do philosophize that we are all sparks and we are all God. There's some truth to that idea, but there's also some problem with that idea that how do we, why are we in the predicament that we're in if we're the whole thing? So that's, so to say that we're God is to really say that if there's anything in this world that most resembles God, it's us. Because why? We're consciousness. And God is pure, pure consciousness. So we have a likeness. Hmm? And we are God-like, but we have a difference too. The difference is kind of kind of quantitative in a sense. We're small and we're the spark and we can get overwhelmed by by matter and um, the Godhead cannot. And so again, the principle of avatar then crossing down to help us out, so to speak, is the idea. A chance that if the Godhead is everything, then Godhead must be savior also. So here's the opportunity, something like that. It's a kind of a leela, actually, a kind of a divine play. This the whole world is called Shristi Leela, the Leela of creation. There's certain types of souls that are part of that, and and they get out of it also in due course, and largely by the advent of the different avatars. So here he is in a mystic slumber, hmm? Vishnu, hmm? and. Um, then Nabi Radam Bujad Asid Brahma Bishpus Vijampati From his navel sprouts a lotus flower. <laughs> and on that lotus flower Brahma is born. Brahma is the four headed kind of sub creator guy. Uh-huh. He's got four heads. It means like you know, he's like figuring everything out. He's gonna He's going to take the basic ingredients now that have manifest and come to life by the combination of consciousness and matter, and he's going to assemble them in such in, 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 by mantram in certain forms and so forth. And then these individual souls are going to find their place, their karmic place, and start over again. And so the lotus is obviously the umbilical, you know, cord idea, but it's like a lotus. It's like you know. He's like the full moon, he's beautiful, and so on and so forth. So the lotus and Brahma's born, and he's got four heads. And this, we'll find later in the Bhagavatam, when this this particular story of the birth of Brahma, this idea is played out in full. This isn't the place where it's going to happen, but it, it comes later. We find that Brahma, had, with the four heads, he looked everywhere, first of all, for his source. He found himself... And he wondered, what is my origin? He's like the composite of all the individuals, so to speak. He represents you know, the, the plight of the individual soul, looking and ultimately looking for our source. Where do we come from? What is our purpose? And so forth. And he's got four heads, so it means he looked hard in all directions. He looks north, south, east, and west. He turns a little bit, it's northeast, north, southeast, and southwest. He looks in all directions. He turns sideways like this, and he looks up. He turns sideways like this, and he looks down. 
up, down, north, south, east, west. This is the idea he, he, that, that we will look in all directions for our source and not find it. Hmm. Hmm. Just by head exercise. It's not possible. Even if we had four heads, he will not find it. He did not find it. But what he did find, what we do find in the story is that he was earnest in his pursuit. And oh, he's looking hard. He's sincere about it. Hmm? But how to go about it, he's not sure. Hmm? Um, so then, revelation. He hears a sound. Tapa. Two syllables from the Sanskrit alphabet. It means light. It means knowledge. It means austerity. It means sacrifice. These things all have a correspondence. From sacrifice, knowledge will come. And from giving, understanding will come, in other words. Hmm? Um, fire or light implies understanding, hmm? revelation. If you take austerity, for example, let's say even by force of circumstances you have to undergo austerity. Let's say you are um, kidnapped by the Taliban, you know, or whatever. The United States government, cap, cap, you know, captures you, invades your home, and says you're not patriotic enough, and then puts you in a prison and uh, and deprives you, so your senses are deprived. You're in an austere condition by force of circumstance. So by force of circumstances, you're undergoing austerity. And what do you do? You go within. You start to think. And you make it through there by philosophizing and, and, and going kind of internal and getting resolved from, from that. Whereas you might not be as operative in your head and certainly not inward looking when there's all type of sense opportunities that present themselves to you. That's kind of an intoxicated condition and you lose your head, so to speak. Hmm. Uh, so what then speak of if you understand this principle and you voluntarily withdraw your senses, pratyahara in the yogic terminology, from sense objects, knowing that going there is not where I'm going to find myself. I have to contact sense objects to some extent. I have to eat. I need to rest. I need to clothe myself. But I should do that only as much as I need to in order to have the energy to pursue myself, my spiritual prospect. Life should be lived for that purpose. How simple it would be. Because that's not a consumer idea. <laughs> consumer society. The consumer society consumes society. At the, at the cost of the consumer society, if you will, is the loss of the self. A complete alienation from from the world and from one's own self. So, Brahma, he heard the sound and he went within. Instead of looking without, he closed his eight, two, four, six, eight eyes. No, yeah, eight eyes. He closed his eight eyes and he... Uh, performed austerity, the austerity, for example, of sitting and meditating and 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 um, and so forth, and not just reaching out to 
feel and touch and taste and see and so forth, whatever there appears to be. And so going within then, and he realized his source. That's an interesting whole story, but this is part of it. And then he got the requisite power to do his particular service. This is a particular evolved kind of condition, if you will, materially speaking. Someone who could become, just like you could become a human, you could you could be born as a human. You could be born as a as a, you know as a as a as a cow. Um, you could be born as a Brahma. Hmm? It's a kind of a position of ideas, and so he has a karmic slight involvement. And playing it out, he finishes and, and goes to the other side. Hmm? So his work is like creative. He's uh, and he gets the power to do that. Hmm? He gets the meditation, he gets an enlightenment and the power to play out what his particular role is and finish. Hmm? So, here he's mentioned. Hmm? And this is then part of a description of the, the oversoul of the, of the universe, his position. And he says what? Um, he says that... Yasya vayava samstanai kalpito loka vishtara tadvai bhagavato rupam vishudam sattvam vujitam. So he said, it, he said that it's imagined, it's conceived of, imagined that all the planets and so forth are situated within his body and it's a kind of a poetic, the text says, way of Thinking about the universe as 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 a as a person, kind of kind of a extended Gaia kind of idea, if you will, that the Earth is a person and an organism or something like that. The universe is is a person, and uh, you know the, the the moon is is one eye, the sun is the other, something. There are descriptions like that. It's a way of connecting everything in the universe and everything you see in nature and so forth to a meditation on the consciousness behind it. Very interesting. So this is mentioned here. But the important, most important words, Tadvai Bhagavato Rupam, he says that Vishudam Sattvam Ujjitam that Purusha, that is is has is not implicated in the world as I mentioned earlier, and he is vishudam sattvam ujjitam. Ujjitam means he has extraordinary power hmm, uh, to, and he is vishudam sattvam. This is the most important word. Vishudam sattvam, pure. Vishuddha. Shuddha means pure. Vishuddha means completely pure. Uh, um, Sattvam. Sattvam means existence. So, pure existence. It means not influenced by the the modes, the modus operandi of material life, which is said to be threefold. We mentioned it yesterday briefly. Intelligibility, uh, movement, inertia, sattva, rajas, tamas. Um, these 
manifest in our psyche and in our physical um, bodies. So goodness, clarity, you know, um, the uh, creativity and uh, the drive to to be more and uh, and so forth. And then Thomas, you know, the kind of like the it's kind of like darkness, laziness, um, apathy. Um, and, and, and they're very nice, interesting concepts because if you understand them properly, you drive down the road and you see a billboard and you see Rajaguna, hmm? you see Sattvaguna, hmm? you see Tamaguna, you know, there's the vodka bottle, you know. And you, so you start to see <laughs> the world just in terms of these guna. They're, the guna means rope also. They're the ropes that bind the, 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 the individual souls and pull them in different directions and so forth. And they're, So they, those gunas, again, we spoke yesterday, they were in an un, kind of state of equilibrium. And then the, the Purusha glanced at them, the glance of consciousness, and they were activated. And then the jivas, the, the soul, became implicated in that action and so forth. So if you understand these gunas and all their implications, it's very fascinating because then again you start to see the whole world in relation to these gunas, and you know how to well I'll stay away from that, or I'll you know I should go in this direction, and and so on. So there are three of them: sattva, rajas, and tamas. But sattva, rajas, and tamas in this world, there's always a little influence of each. The sattva described here is is vishuddha sattva. So it's not this sattva guna; it's transcendental to the sattva guna, hmm? pure goodness entirely, hmm? so to speak. Um, pure clarity, pure consciousness. So it wants to make the Bible here clear the point that the origin of the world hmm, is um, is not affected hmm, by the influences of the world. Hmm. And then we have what? Two more two more verses. This is a oh, he says then that Sutta Goswami says that the pashanti adhurupam abadhuchakshusha, the realized people, they see this, they have a vision of this purusha. Mm-hmm. And, and he's described sahasra padoru bhujanan adbhutam, he says, sahasra mudra, sahasra mudha, sahasra Moli Avaram. He says, he has thousands of hands. Sahasra means thousands. Thousands of legs, thousands of arms, thousands of faces, thousands of eyes. And uh, the commentators have uh, informed us wisely that the implication here is that he's pervades the entire universe at the same time. He's not of the universe. So Vishnu, which is in the name for the Purusha, means all-pervasive. So the idea is that some people ask, have you seen God? And where is God? And then the, the sages reply, where is there not God? This is their vision. Hmm. So thousands of eyes, thousands of legs, thousands of hands, everywhere, hmm. all-pervasive. And it, uh, it's... Uh, 
course, the method of the Bhagavatam for seeing that is 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 explained. So then, etan nanavataranam nidhanam bijamabhyam yasyam shang sena sridjante devatiryan naradaya. So this form, the second manifestation of the Purusha, the one we're talking about within each universe, is the source of the in, an indestructible seed of multifarious avatars, innumerable avatars that appear within the universe. From the particles and the portions, partial manifestations of himself, different types of avatars and so forth of the, of the Purusha, then come about all the different uh, devas and, and human beings, something like that. And they move among them and, and um, implication is and, um, and give them opportunity to facilitate their meeting, their maker, so to speak, and, and more. So here now we come again to the what the topic is about here, avatars. Hmm? And they all come in the world through this second Purusha. Hmm? Now, the important part of this chapter <laughs> is that, among, that then now there will be a list of so many avatars. The Buddha, the, the Kurma, the Narasimha, and so many different avatars in different forms and shapes. And the stories of these are played out later on in the text wonderful stories with all types of philosophical implications and insights for sadhakas, spiritual practitioners, and so forth, and, and so on. So here there's just a, a list of some of them, and the list concludes with the word asankhya. It says, oh, and they're uncountable, like waves of the ocean. Hmm? They're uncountable. Um, but in the list, Krishna is mentioned also. So, there is an appearance that Krishna is one of the avatars. But the Bhagavatam is saying in this section, if we study it carefully in context of the entirety of the, of the book, that no, that's not the case. Actually, although Krishna appears as an avatar, this form of the Godhead is actually the source of all avatars, including these Purushas, these Paramatmas. He's the full person. He is Bhagavan Swayam. Ete chamsa kalapumsa krishnas tu Bhagavan Swayam. That verse comes at, after describing the different avatars. It says all these avatars hmm, that have been described, hmm, uh, they appear in the world at different times to deliver the people, but amongst them that have been listed, Krishna, Bhagavan Swayam. Now, the word Bhagavan is used, and Swayam, is used. So, who is Krishna, Swayam, Bhagavan? We may remember that the subject of the first verse in this chapter was Bhagavan. Bhagavan appeared as the Purusha, hmm? as the Paramatma for the world, manifestation of the world. The Bhagavan is in Leela and aloof from the world, but a partial manifestation of himself as Paramatma, the Ishwar, the controller, and so forth is. is because, after all, Bhagawan is controlled. Paramatma is the controller. This is a very interesting theological point. Hmm? 
Paramatma, the Purusha, is the controller, the Ishwar. Everywhere. He's pervading everywhere. He knows everything. He's in every atom, you know, omniscience and so forth. All-knowing, all-controlling. But Bhagawan is controlled. Now, how can Bhagawan be a more complete manifestation of the Godhead if the Paramatma, the Purusha, is is, is the controller and Bhagawan is controlled? The answer, of course, is that he's controlled by the love of his devotees. This love brings out something out of the Absolute that makes him more uh, personable. Just like a, a, a young lady can make a guy a little nicer sometimes, you know, and bring things out of him that uh, you know he didn't know was there and so forth. And, uh, and uh, so the Shakti is feminine, and this devotion, this bhakti, is is a is a type of a, a shakti we call it swarup shakti, so this is operative in the lila in the world beyond the world of matter and consciousness the pure consciousness world, so the shakti is operative there, and it is particular shakti there are many shakti this particular shakti called swayam shakti or so you say swarup shakti, um, and it it is the driving principle, and it is what animates the Absolute in the, in the form, if you will, of Bhagwan. So someone asked me the other day, well, who is this? what's the source of Krishna? It's kind of a stupid question because Krishna said to be the source of everything. But I said, well, we have an answer for that. Hmm. Some people say that existence arises from movement. This is an interesting idea. And so to follow that line of reasoning, movement means the Shakti in theological terms of the Bhagavad. And the primal manifestation, of the, the, the full manifestation of the Shakti, this is Radha. And Radha is the cause of Krishna, in other words. Who's the cause of Radha then? Krishna. <laughs> so... <laughs> Radha causes Krishna, Krishna causes Radha, something like that. There's a nice saying in Bengali, in a text, Bengali text, uh, Chaitanya Charitamrita. Krishna is speaking in the text through the author's pen. He says, hmm. Ami Purnatattva. I, Ami, I am Purnatattva, the supreme, full tattva. I'm everything. Hmm? Ami Purnatattva. Hmm? Kintu, but Radikar Premera Unmata. The Prem of Radha, that Radha is the embodiment of Prem means love, Prema Mai, just the embodiment of love. That Premera Unmata, Unmata means mad, drives me mad. I'm the Purnatattva, and everybody thinks of me like that, so many yogis, but the fact of the matter is, I'm bought and sold, you know, I'm paid for, and I'm completely uh, a plaything in, in, in her hands, is the idea. Another place he says in the same text, hmm, how does he say, Ami Shisha Guru Nata, Radhikara, Radhikar Prem, same idea. I am the Shisha. I am the disciple. And the Prem of Radha is my Guru. Hmm. 
and under her instruction I'm dancing. So <laughs> the the whole the, the 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 whole Brahman comes to life like this. So the Paramatma is, contr- is the controller of matter, and Bhagwan is controlled, but by not by matter. He's also transcendental, but he's controlled by love. This is charming. The Paramatma feature of the Absolute is witness and sanction. The, the, the soul has a desire. It's sanctioned, something like that. And witnessing. Hmm? Not fully animate. A witness is just kind of, I witnessed it, rather than being part of the play, so to speak. Hmm? I was in the audience. I witnessed objectively. The Paramatma is equal to all. He's in every soul, in every atom. This is the idea of equality and, uh, and uh, how you say, um, uh, impartiality. There's a nice verse in the Gita in this regard. What is that verse? Oh, what is that verse? In the ninth chapter. Krishna says, Samoham Sarvabhutanam. No. Samoham Sarvabhuteshu. Samoham Sarvabhuteshu. I am equal to everyone. And the next line, I forget. He say, he's, so there's two, both the, the Paramatma speaks, which is a feature of Krishna, and then Krishna speaks. The Paramatma says, I am equal to all. Hmm. And it says then, it, then Krishna speaks, but my devotees, I'm you know, impartial to them. How can you be equal to all and partial to devotees? And partiality seems like a defect. Impartiality seems like yeah, that's we should be impartial, especially if we're the um, you know the president or the head of state or something. We should be impartial. We shouldn't be bought by a corporation or by any particular group and so forth. Otherwise, how can we you know, treat everybody equally? Hmm? So he says, he says, I'm equal in this form, but in this form I'm partial. I'm partial to my devotees. And what, but then what is a devotee, you see? A devotee in the ultimate sense is one who has transcended hmm, the partiality of this world, hmm, has risen above that impartiality, and beyond, so to speak. Bhakti is a partiality. There's partiality towards Ram. There are Ram bhaktas. There are Krishna bhaktas. And for all the different avatars, there are devotees. So there's some partiality. It makes for a difference. We talked about difference and unity at the same time. They all love the Godhead in different, different, in different ways, so to speak. And he is appearing accordingly. That's the idea. So bhakti is creating Krishna. <laughs> you understand? Love is the source. This love is not different from Krishna. And this love is, is, has nothing to do with material love, which compromises us and makes us partial to one over another and so forth. It's a wise love. It's a yogic love that's arrived at in the context of becoming... In the context of cultivating it, one becomes impartial. But there's a more to it than that. Because impartiality that causes us not to take and to be fair and so forth 
isn't the full face of love. Hmm? Love is a kind of partiality. And if I love you and somebody else doesn't like you, well, I don't like that person. Is that bad? Hmm? You have to think about it. It depends, of course, you know, materially speaking, it could be problematic, but the idea is we take this to a theistic you know, um, principle. And so really loving the source, source entirely and so forth yeah, causes the, the Godhead, so to speak, to come under the soul, the control, in a sense, of the individual. It's a very far out idea. Because people would like to be the controller, the you know, organizer, whatever, in charge, and so forth. There's no way to do that really comprehensively. But the one who is in charge can become your best friend, kind of, so to speak. What's, that, what, what, what's left to be had by you then? No need to own anything. So, Bhagawan is then the full manifestation. Paramatma is a partial manifestation for a particular purpose, the world soul, so to speak. Hmm? He's somewhat personal, but the Bhagawan is a full personal. So, the verse comes, Krishna's too, Bhagavan Swayam. So all these avatars are there. Yes, Krishna comes, and there's a story in the Bhagavatam how Brahma goes to the, uh, in meditation, he contacts this Purusha internally when the world is disturbed, and and uh, the Purusha says, I will appear. Vasudeva Grihe Sakshad Bhagavan Purusha Para. This is in the 10th canto. In the house of this Vasudev, I will appear. Vasudeva Griha, Vasudeva Grihe, Sakshad Bhagavan Parama Purusha, or Purusha Para, same thing. Hmm? So then, uh, uh, this is how he gets the message. And Brahma, this is Brahma's speech. He relates this to the all the devas, the gods. That there's going to be an avatar. Hmm? Things are going to be okay. And the avatars are going to come. They're going to appear in this section, in this family, and and gods and goddesses should have some manifestation in that family and you know the world's. Got. So this is about the Krishna avatar as it appears. But if we study the words there, we find similar words that what's come in this chapter. Krishna's two Bhagavan Swayam. So the question comes, though, who is this that's going to come? Is it the Purusha? Who the source of the avatars? No, because it says Purusha Para. Oh, so we know that this second Purusha is has a source in the first Purusha. So he must be the Para. That means the, the highest Purusha. It's Purusha. So it must be then the one from whom the multiverse has come. That one's going to come as an avatar. Wow. Hmm? No. Why? Because the word. Bhagawan is used. Bhagawan, Purusha, Para. We already heard here that the Purusha comes from Bhagawan. Hmm? So, oh, it's not one of the Purushas. It's Bhagawan is going to come through the Purusha, so to speak, which is the way to come. Hmm? But it's a special kind of appearance. Hmm? But the verse says, no, not just Bhagawan. This is a further idea. Hmm? Who is Narayan? In the, in the in the world of consciousness, but Sakshad Bhagawan. Hmm? Sakshad. Sakshad means like same thing. Swayam. Krishna. Krishna's too. Bhagavan Swayam. So it's a, he, we're going to a more developed idea of Bhagawan, where God becomes 
the God who becomes more controlled. Hmm? Love becomes more intense. It's a big topic and it's a really central topic to this particular uh, particular bhakti tradition and its emphasis on Radha and Krishna. Hmm? Um, but this is a very important point for practice to make clear the the kind of the idea that Krishna is the fountainhead of the Narayan, who's the uh, God who's worshipped in awe and reverence in 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 the in the uh, realm of pure, pure consciousness. He's biased towards those devotees, conquered by them, but not to the same extent that Krishna is. Hmm? Their love is reverential and and so forth. But in the in the Krishna realm, we find oh, well, Krishna is completely purchased by them. Hmm? So we find the absolute, you know, as being uh, it's just like just is 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 so much putting himself in the hands of the devotees. In some instances, it's like like becoming the child of someone, like becoming the lover of someone, becoming the friend of someone. Hmm? You know, I'll do anything for you. Yeah. What, you know, I'm, I'm there for you. You know, um, following orders. You know, this is like very kind of turns the religious world upside down <laughs> kind of idea. So, and, and this is all really speaking, while well, well, Krishna is being praised, you see, as the source of everything, the fountainhead of all avatars and so forth, we look carefully at that. What's being said is bhakti is being praised. Hmm. Bhakti is this kind of, is what's, in a sense, creating Krishna. Hmm. That love and so forth is causing the absolute to take that position of being purchased entirely. So there's a type of bhakti that you know, goes in this uh, direction, reaches this kind of extreme. Hmm? This is what we're interested in. And so if you're going to practice it, it's important to know hmm, that amongst all the different avatars, so that there's a reason for focusing on, on Krishna. Because if you were going to give yourself completely, I mean completely, without any reservation, hmm, entirely, in other words, let's say you, let's say you love God because God is God. That sounds pretty good. But there's a reason for your love. Do you understand? And the full face of love knows no reason. Hmm? In other words, I should do it, therefore I will. And it's good. It's the right thing to do. And it's wonderful and so forth. This is a kind of love of God and it's very beautiful. But what what the Bhagavatam is talking about is a, a kind of love of God that's that goes where there's no reason. It's automatic. It's just like you love your child, or just like you love your friend, or just like you love parts of your body, and you you just don't think about it. You don't stub your toe and think, "Hmm, my toe has been tub has toe has been stubbed. I should maybe say ouch or something or touch it or you just you just there ouch. You're just there. Full identification." So completely identifying with the absolute, as if, like, like it's a part of your own body, you know, like something like that, or your closest friend or something, with such intensity that there's no reason for loving. You're just, it's automatic. There's no because if there's a reason, there's a little bit of separation. Hmm? So the union is complete. It's it's going from worship to love. Love bridges the gap between worship. And object of worship. Hmm? Yes, in love there's an object of love, but but one becomes one with that object in a dynamic sense. Hmm? 
So this is what the Bhagavad is teaching about, and therefore it's emphasis on Krishna, because why? If you want to give completely, you have to find that manifestation of the Godhead that can take completely. That's why Krishna is depicted as like an enjoyer, so to speak. It has nothing to do, no duties to accomplish. He just plays the flute, dances, hmm, herds cows, you know, he's just he's just enjoying. Hmm. And so <laughs> One who's just playing must be all-powerful because it takes power to play. You have to have money in the bank to take a vacation. Hmm. Um, but it's kind of like a secondary thing to manifest powers. It's a higher thing to be like um, under the power and influence of, of love, something like that. So, again, if you want to give unlimitedly and completely, comprehensively, without even thinking, automatically, so to speak, just like... Another example, you're walking down the street and there's a building on fire and you just run inside and save the child. And then the, the, the press comes and the police come and you're in the newspaper and they say, what were you thinking? He said, I wasn't thinking. I just, I completely sacrificed myself without even thinking about it. I just went there. Hmm? It's something like that, this idea. Hmm? And then everybody's putting a medal on you, and he's saying, "I don't really deserve anything." I, I just so that devotees are very humble. You see, devotees of Krishna are very humble. They don't think we're worshiping the source, the, the source of all avatars. So you're worshiping that avatar. We're worshiping the source of all. You know, it's very interesting the way it's, because they are, and their love is more like kind of intense, if you will. You know, it's all perfect, different shades of it, but. Uh, comparatively, it, it affords greater intimacy, but it doesn't bring any pride with it. It brings humility, just like the person says, "Well, I didn't do it. I'm just, you know, I just did it. it you know, I, whatever. I mean, I didn't even think, you know." And uh, so, something like that. But the point is, if you want to have this kind of love, that you have, that there have to be two things. You have to give without any motivation, without any calculation. Hmm? And there's a culture, how to arrive at that, a yoga culture, of course, that's what we're involved in here. So on the one hand, you have to give without motivation. And secondly, in order to give without any motivation, without any reservation, you have to know, you have to find the place that can take everything. Hmm? So there are certain manifestations of the Godhead that will not take that kind of love. Narayan only takes, you know, he's got his hand up like this, oh, giving a blessing. He doesn't take that kind of... Krishna is a manifestation of the divinity that takes all, more intensity in love. So you have to find that source, otherwise you're not going to be able to arrive at that platform if it exists. So Bhagavatam theologically wants to make this point, very important point in the text. Krishna's too, Bhagavan so I am. Krishna appears like an avatar, but it's a very special occasion because he's actually the source of all avatars coming. And so the prospect of all of us in connection with Krishna and the direct teaching of Krishna so this is immense. It's 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 it, it gives us the opportunity to go, you know, beyond um, go the full distance, so to speak, and and, and experience the fullness of, of bhakti. So any question? What's the time? 8.10. I realize these, um, this is, can be a bit technical, and this is uh, very, especially for those of you who've come here for the first time, and it's it's also kind of like um, 
culturally and ritualistically a little bit like, wow, what's going on here? <laughs> Different, you know, languages and songs at, you know, before dawn and altars and forms and spices and you know, all kinds of things. It's a cultural, like, you know, what, what do you say, like, short circuit or, you know, culture shock or, yeah, you know, it's uh, overdose, kind of, but <laughs> anyway, so maybe tomorrow I'll try to talk about some of the things that we do here and uh, depart a little bit from the text and uh, give some explanations of the different uh, rituals and um, the why of them and so forth and try to help us make some some sense out of them so it doesn't seem as foreign. Then again, some people come and just like it. They don't need to know anything about it. They just think, I think that's cool. That, those altars and the chanting, and that's enough. And Swami's pretty nice too, so go with it. You know, something like that. Cows, and so that works too. All right. So, Simon Bhagavatam, Vijay. Oh, Premanand.